0: chapter six of st charles borromeo a sketch of the reforming cardinal by louise m stackpole this librivox recording is in the public domain Recording by maria therese chapter six the church of peace the apostle of rome the council of trent thus brought to a successful and glorious termination the sovereign pontiff the princes and pastors of the church devoted themselves to the task of carrying out its decrees Foremost and most zealous in the strenuous work was Charles Borromeo. He ably cooperated with the erudite prelates and distinguished literary men, whom Pius is selected to compose the Catechism of Trent, a work which is, as we all know, a complete and perfect abridgment of Catholic theology. It was not, however, published during the lifetime of Pius IV, though it was in the press. On the accession of Saint Pius V, he got it carefully revised by another commission having Cardinal Cerletti as president and Poggiani as secretary. In the month of September, 1566, two editions appeared, one in Latin and the other in Italian. Charles also helped considerably in the revision of the breviary and the missal. His time was fully taken up with these difficult tasks, but, like most persons who have plenty to do, he generally found time to do more. It is only the indolent and the frivolous who, while frittering away the precious hours, never have a spare moment. In fifteen sixty four Charles started restoring and finished rebuilding his church of Saint Prosede. During the absence of the popes at Avignon, it had become almost a ruin. Nicholas V had commenced its restoration, and now in an incredibly short time Charles finished this work. Some people say he spoiled the general effect by introducing injudicious modernizations that do not harmonize with the low campanile, the porch, and the terracotta mosaics and cornices the parts that still remain of the old church erected by Paschal I in the ninth century. It is a matter of taste. It is, however, certain that Charles got the work executed in the way that he considered best. At any rate, it is a church full of historical interest, if not of perfect architecture, for St. Bracete was the daughter of Budens, in whose house St. Paul lodged, and sister of St. Potenciana, and they were among his first converts. An oratory was erected on the site where the sisters were buried by Pius I in 499, but at the present day their bodies are interred under the high altar. The greatest treasure of the church is not, however, the bodies of these holy women, but the column to which Jesus Christ was bound and scourged. Every year thousands of devout pilgrims visit this sacred relic. It was brought to Rome in 1223 by Cardinal Giovanni Colonna, having been given to him by the Saracens. Because when Cardinal of Saint Protais and Legate of the Crusade, he had been taken prisoner by them and condemned to death, and he was rescued by a miraculous intervention of heavenly light. Notwithstanding its architectural defects, it is a peaceful and devotional church. Saint Proxas ever was the church for peace. After and during its restoration, the young cardinal frequently came to pray in the restful little chapel in the left aisle or to meditate in the cloisters where the orange tree he planted still flourishes and bears golden fruit the little chapel is now called by his name and in it are preserved his episcopal throne it is only an ordinary wooden chair and the table at which he used to wait upon and feed twelve poor men every day for charles loved the poor with a consuming passion helped them in every way becoming like unto a servant that he might the better and more efficaciously tend to nourish them He gave them not only money, food, and clothes, but himself, his time, his heart, his whole generous soul, believing that the Holy Supper is kept indeed in whatso we share with another's need. Not what we give, but what we share, for the gift without the giver is bare, who gives himself with his alms, feeds three, himself, his hungering neighbor, and me. While in Rome he spent nearly every penny he possessed in charity only reserving a sufficient amount to pay his attendants, buy the necessaries of life, and keep his house in order. He had forsworn splendor. He no longer fared sumptuously or went in silk attire. On the contrary, a crust of bread, taken with dried figs and raisins, or a few nuts, was his only food, water his only drink, and he wore raiment of the cheapest and simplest material, consistent with the dignity of a prince of the church. He dismissed most of his staff, keeping the smallest possible number of priests and domestics. At this time he was fortunately able to turn another of his possessions to the divine service, his love of music. The Council of Trent had called the attention of the Pope and the bishops to the fact that worldly and unseemly chants were used in the churches. They could, indeed, scarcely be dignified with that name, for they were as often as not gay, rollicking airs, trolled forth with such verve that it was impossible to pray or to attend with fitting reverence and devotion to the holy sacrifice for these varied loud and persistent melodies quite drowned the voice of the celebrant it was resolved that the gregorian chant or something closely resembling it should be used consequently a commission was appointed by pious the fourth to undertake the reform of church music who better fit it to direct this assembly than the cardinal who played with such artistic skill and melodious sweetness both on the lute and the violoncello Whose expert fingers brought forth from these instruments strains of such surpassing melody that they were often able to soothe and refresh the overworked aged pope in moments of weariness and pain? Charles employed the celebrated musician Pierre Luigi, he was generally called by the name of his native town Palestrina, to compose three masses. The most beautiful of these, chefs ove was called the Mass of Pope Marcellus and is well known throughout Christendom when pious the fourth heard it for the first time he exclaimed these sublime melodies must be those new heavenly canticles that the apostle of saint john heard in the new jerusalem and he applied to it with a slight alteration dante's verses they render voice to voice in modulation and sweetness that cannot be comprehended excepting there where joy is made eternal palestrina became the friend of charles borromeo as he was already a philip Neri, the gentle and seraphic saint who loved and appreciated sweet melodies so dearly that he wrote in his role that his sons and the faithful should rouse themselves to the contemplation of heavenly things by means of musical harmony palestrina was in fifteen sixty five appointed composer to the papal chapel and universally recognized as the reformer of sacred music the friendship that in consequence sprang up between these three passionate lovers of beautiful music the noble cardinal the humble priest and the world-renowned musician was one of rare strength and depth. They were all three different in character, in position, in appearance, and yet all three were drawn closely together, first by a great mutual love of music, and afterwards, when they knew each other better, by the knowledge that all three loved their saviour with unquenchable ardour. Of course, Palestrina was not a saint like Philip and Charles, but he was a good, practical Catholic, who devoted his incomparable genius to the divine service. St. Philip Neri was at this time about fifty years old, and Charles was twenty-five. The difference in age of a quarter of a century only helped to strengthen the bonds of their friendship. Charles felt for the saintly apostle of Rome sincere veneration mingled with warm affection, treating St. Philip with the deference and humility of a disciple, and the gentle apostle on his side showed considerable admiration and esteem for the Secretary of State's powerful intellect, sound common sense, strict integrity, and generous devotion to the poor and suffering philip was a man of such surpassing sanctity that to know him was not only a liberal but a holy education he had a gentle kindly disposition a fatherly and benevolent way with him that fascinated most people as absolutely as his winning smile and his soft low voice charles as we have seen was reserved austere somewhat rigid and unbending he did not talk much being of a silent, self-contained nature. He hardly ever laughed aloud, but his rare smile was like a flash of summer. It was so spontaneous and genial. Philip, on the contrary, not only smiled frequently, but laughed heartily, thoroughly enjoying a joke or a bon mot. Indeed, he himself often indulged in harmless pleasantries, and could relate an amusing anecdote in a joyous and humorous manner. Notwithstanding these differences, in outward seeming, They were interiorly so alike that these little disparities only drew them closer together as opposite natures generally revere and admire each other venerating and appreciating the gifts they do not themselves possess charles and philip were however alike in essentials they both possessed angelic purity of soul noble intellect and liberal minds and loyal courageous generous hearts both were inflamed by the same seraphic love of god burning zeal for souls, and an unbounded devotion to the poor and afflicted members of Christ's flock. So great was the esteem and veneration in which the cardinal held the humble priest of the oratory, that, when leaving Rome to take possession of his see of Milan, he confided to Philip's spiritual guidance his beloved sister, Princess Anna Colonna. From that period until her death in 1582, Anna was Philip's penitent, and under his direction attained to great and rare perfection, in the midst of the luxury and splendor of the colonna palace she led a life of a humble and fervent christian she had no children and this was a terrible trial to her she often confided her sorrow to philip and one day he said do not grieve anna your trouble will not last long for you will have two sons afterward she said she owed her boys to the intercession of saint philip and that they were the children of prayer her connection with the apostle of rome drew closer together the ties of friendship that bound him and her brother the archbishop of milan and after charles had gone to his see, he frequently wrote long interesting letters to philip who replied in his usual pleasant manner and though absent in body they remained affectionately united in spirit and their mutual love and esteem constantly increased and deepened in a letter to anna charles writes in 1571 I look upon it as a precious blessing that you find such great consolation and support in your frequent conversations with father philip and in his direction of your soul wherefore i beg of you to persevere in this way of life and to strengthen within you these beginnings of the spiritual life by reading the pious books and performing the pious exercises father philip recommends i am certain that you will thus advance rapidly towards perfection and that your soul will be in such peace that you will always rejoice and be glad in our lord in fifteen seventy two he again wrote i received your letter and the blessed medal father philip gave you for me it is very dear to me for his sake as well as for yours thank him for this second spiritual treasure given to me and be sure you let me know what indulgences are attached to the medal i am delighted to hear that signor marcantonio frequently attends the sermons and spiritual exercises at saint geronimo i am confident that his piety will cause him to reap great benefits and even pleasure from them and that his example will lead others to frequent these devotions. Thus this holy friendship ripened, and these chosen souls were drawn closer together, through their fervent love of their redeemer. At last Charles was about to realize his heart's desire and take formal possession of his see of Milan, for it was only after long and weary waiting that his uncle, the sovereign pontiff, consented to part with this nephew, who was the prop and the comfort of his declining years. End of chapter 6